I'm Rachel. I'm Sam. I'm Ward. I'm Tim. I'm Justin. And, and this, this is Comics Verse. It is said two things that happen are a coincidence that form a line, but three things that happen form a pattern. So we're not quite at three yet, but it is worth noting that 366 days ago, I sat in this very room with three talented panelists who helped me interview X-Men writer Chris Claremont. Some have argued Chris Claremont is to X-Men. Our guest today is to DC Comics Teen Titans. However, the latter's career got started a good decade earlier. He worked with DC Comics in 1968 on Blackhawk 242. He then worked with legendary creator Len Wein. The two co-created the character Johnny Double in 1968's Showcase 78. After that, he went on to work on comics you may have heard of before, such as Teen Titans, New Teen Titans, Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Daredevil and Fantastic Four, just to name a few. He rewrote Spider-Woman's origin and gave one to Donna Troy, also creating characters like Raven, Terax, Starfire, Cyborg, Nova, Bullseye, and Blade. We are humbled to have the opportunity to interview someone so intertwined with the comics medium itself. In a minute, we're going to welcome Marv Wolfman to the podcast. But before we get started, please allow me to introduce my almost all-new panel minus one person of DC Comics experts. But first, you can find more podcasts like this one, a ton of interviews, articles, analyses, videos, and more interviews over at comicsfirst.com. So please be sure to check us out. So first up is Tim O'Reilly, a writer for Comics First, mostly in the DC section. So welcome back, Tim. It's great to be back. Thank you for the welcome. That was beautifully said. So I'm, I'm so happy to have you back. But anyway, so you're one of the only ones here, or you are the only one here who's been on a podcast before. So... This is obviously going to be very different from Marguerite Abouet's Aya of Yop City. So what is some of your advice to the newbies we are? I think the biggest thing, especially when you're interviewing someone, is to make sure you still have personality. Because I think, first and foremost, this is a conversation that you're having with this person. And the most um, enlightening and illuminating of conversations come when you're actually giving personality for this person to feedback on. So I think while you're while we have questions that we want to answer or that we want to ask Marv Wolfman, you want to really be able to still get your personality in there. So he has a reading of who you are as a person. So it's really it's like nice it's a casual conversation it's fun it's engaging and it's in for both him and the audience so next up is new addition to comics first small publishing and indie section editor rachel davis rachel are you ready to transition into talking about some dc comics ready and eager so what was your first exposure to a marv wolfman work my first exposure would be wonder woman number 287 um, I saw it at the little comic shop right on the other side of the train station. Um, yeah. I How was old were you? Oh, I was eight years old, but I was not by myself. <laughs> that's, that's good. Probably should have mentioned that. Yes, yes, but I was definitely going through a Wonder Woman phase, and I begged my parents for two Wonder Woman comics, and one of them happened to be Marv Wolfman's, and it was my favorite comic book as a kid. I didn't know who Marv Wolfman was yet, but as I got older and I realized all my favorite characters from Teen Titans were pretty much by Marv Wolfman, Raven, Starfire, Cyborg. I mean, he had a huge influence on my love of comics. That's awesome. So I think it's very apropos that you're here to uh, to interview him. 
But anyway, speaking of the DC of the DC comics section for comics first, we have two other editors from it, Ward Williams and Sam Sobel. Sam, am I pronouncing your last name right? Yeah, you got it. Sobel? Sobel. Okay, cool. That's what I thought. Um, but anyway, I'm going to ask Ward first because he's first on the list here. Um, so Ward, you've worked at comics first a long time, like 500 years. You're like the, um, like the Raz al Ghul of comics first. I don't really know why. Uh, but anyway, this is your first podcast. So how do you feel about it? I'm uh, hi, Justin. I'm feeling surprisingly not nervous about this, despite the fact that I just messed up my first sentence. <laughs> That's awesome. Surprisingly not nervous. Okay, cool. Uh, tell me what one of your favorite Marv Wolfman works is. Uh, that's tricky. If I had to say, I'd probably say the new Teen Titans. I haven't completely finished reading everything he's done yet, but uh, a lot like Rachel, I grew up watching the Teen Titans cartoon, which was hugely influential on my love of superheroes. It was like my pretty much most of my childhood um, and seeing those characters in this earlier form of them, but also seeing how those characters came to life in very similar ways on the uh, on TV, seeing like, hey, wow, I recognize this kind of scene from the show. You know, they did it similarly and also seeing what's different. It was a very almost I'd say transformative experience to see how this medium can be adapted to other media, especially when you see a lot of movies or other TV shows and they don't do the, sh- uh, the material justice. Absolutely. So who was your favorite Teen Titan growing up? Oh, that's tough. Um, I mean, I attempted to say Starfire because I had a huge crush on her. But I, as I got older, I kind of gained a new appreciation for her as a character who's very emotionally honest. She's, you know, if she's upset with you, she'll tell you not worrying about hurting your feelings because she knows that that's the only way she and by extension, the two of you as people can get past that. And I respect that because I feel like uh, us as people, we often don't do that. We'll often say we're fine when we're not feeling fine. And she's a very unique character in that sense. So, Sam, we're finally at your last but never least. Right. Um, so you are a another DC Comics section editor. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. I'm really excited to have you on. So you're also one of the writers, directors, showrunners, main organizers of the weekly comics news show. You've been on camera even a few times. So how does it feel jumping onto one of your first podcasts? I am much more excited to be doing this than I was to be on camera, to be perfectly honest. I, I'm fine with my voice. I just don't love being on camera. But this, this is exciting, and I'm really excited to meet Marv Wolfman. So what are some of your favorite Marv Wolfman comics or characters that he created? I'm going to have to go with New Teen Titans also and the Raven series from this past year, which I absolutely loved. And that was my first exposure to Marv Wolfman was that series. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to find all of the other stuff he wrote because it was so good. Without further ado, we're going to introduce Mr. Marv Wolfman. Welcome, Marv. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'd say the first thing I wanted to ask is, is it true that your father was a police officer in New York City? Because that's definitely something we have in common. Um, my dad was a detective in New York City. So I wanted to ask what it was like growing up with a father who was in the NYPD. Uh, he was a, a policeman in Coney Island, uh, the 60th precinct in Coney Island. How did your family react when you told them that you were choosing to go into writing and art? Because you went to an all-arts high school, was that correct? Yes, I did. I went to a high school of art and design. It wasn't all arts. We had four periods of art, and we had all the regular subjects. And in fact, the day was about an hour longer than most schools to accommodate that. So we had a full educational curriculum, as well as four periods of art. 
the fact that I collected comics and everything did not go over well. Uh, they didn't like the comics at all and pretty much threw them all out. But uh, it, you have to remember the time period was when Frederick Wortham was uh, coming down on how awful comics were. And the fact that I had the highest reading average of boys in my public school, you know, I read comics, but I also read other stuff, uh, didn't deter them from thinking it was bad because that's what we were hearing or what they were hearing in the news. I love them though. So I kept sneaking them in and occasionally they'd find them and toss them out again. So um, what kind of training did you receive at your high school or really anywhere else that helped you to develop your style? All the artists who taught at art and design had to be professionals in the field. They weren't just teachers. They had to have a full career in that business. Uh, they weren't interested in, you know, people who teach but don't do. You had to both teach and do. One of my teachers was Bernie Krigstein, who was a brilliant artist who worked a lot for EC and a number of other companies. And all my teachers, all the art teachers were professionals. So they basically taught you what to be a professional. You know, make your deadlines, work on this, work on the. Obviously, it didn't help. I never became an artist uh, in the business, but it did help in that I knew how to communicate with artists. I understood what needed to be done. I just couldn't physically draw it myself, but I could always ask an artist to draw something that I could visualize, which meant I knew it could be done, as opposed to a lot of writers who did things that simply can't be drawn. Can you tell us about the horror van scene that sort of started you off? Stories of suspense, right? I worked on uh, three or four different fanzines. I did a comedy fanzine called The Foob, uh, which was a satire comedy. I did um, a horror fanzine, Stories of Suspense, which had both comics and text sto prose stories. I did Super Adventures, and I did What The which was an opinion fanzine where I would talk about my views of comics and other stuff. I actually learned an awful lot because the fanzines, they get mail. People, uh, you know, bought it. Uh, you can never make money doing it, but um, people bought them and did write to you because they understood that you were trying. And basically, most people thought for somebody who was drawing all my stuff, I was writing really good stories. So <laughs> they, they were much more pro uh, my writing than my art, and I picked that up pretty quickly. So, yeah, speaking about your writing and um, the way you approach your art, I remember watching an interview with Joaquin Phoenix, and he was talking about how he had these artistic moments of frustration. He was banging his head against the wall. And he talked about how people in all forms of art have these moments where they're really frustrated. And I was going to ask you if you had moments like that um, where you, you know you were kind of banging your head against the wall, whether you're whether it was creating a character or working on a storyline, and kind of how you moved through it. You always have those moments. You have them all the time because writing and art is an art, not a science. There is no absolute way of doing it. So, the story that works, you're trying to come up with a reason underneath the story, the, what the theme of the story is. You're trying to come up with what the plot is, you're trying to come up with a hundred different things, and if any one thing goes wrong, it's going to throw the whole story off. It's going to not work. And the trick is, you have to keep at it, 
sometimes you go away, sometimes you just get up and go see a movie or something. But other times I found uh, that if I turn 180 degrees and go exactly the opposite way that I thought I was supposed to go, very often a story will come to me, it will work, I'll figure out what was missing. Uh, my view, and I do teaching, um, I do a lot of seminars and conventions and stuff on writing, and my view is that if you know your characters well, they will tell you when it cannot be done, when something is wrong with the character. They will not let you make a wrong move because it is so obvious that it's, not, that it's wrong for the character, it's not what the character will do. But you have to invest the time in the beginning to understand who these characters are so that your inner voice will tell you that, no, this is the wrong way to go, something is holding up the progress of the story, and you got to figure out what. Is there any character that you'd really like to write but you've never had the chance to? Um, let's say uh, Popeye. Uh, he's the only one from my childhood I haven't written. I've written Mickey Mouse, I've written DuckTales, I've written The Simpsons, I've written uh, a whole bunch, uh, Daffy Duck too, uh, but I haven't written Popeye, so I would like to write him. At DC, something like uh, Dead Man I really never had a chance to do, or Adam Strange, and he was one of my favorites. What's changed the most in terms of how you approach the art of writing when you started off versus working on current projects? Uh, when you're beginning and you're starting to get work, you know, you're just pl plowing ahead, you're writing, you're doing as much as you possibly can, and you really don't understand a lot of things. Uh, my writing has slowed down tremendously because now I'm thinking about a lot of things that I never thought about before. I wasn't just going on impulse or emotion. I try to make the story work structurally so that every scene folds correctly into the next. So what's changed is I'm no longer writing lightning fast. I could do that, but I can't do that until I know the story inside and out. Where do you find inspiration for your writing and characters? From what I'm trying to do with the story, uh, really. I come up with an idea, I come up with a character. Sometimes I'll come up with a character first. The inspiration comes from trying to do it and to do a good job because, frankly, I really like sitting there and keep working on a sentence or keep working on an idea until it all comes together because there's a great feeling when you make it work. If you're not doing that, if you're not, if you're not um, really love what you're doing, it will take you forever or it'll take you no time at all because you don't care. I think my inspiration comes from just wanting to tell that story. A lot of writers talk about how they move through creative blocks. If you're a writer who experienced them, how have you moved through creative blocks in the past? I had one fairly long block. Uh, now, it didn't prevent me from working, but it did prevent me from um, probably doing the best job that I could do. It became more professional because I, I once, you, once you're at a certain level and you understand structure and you understand dialogue and that, you can pretty much write it whether you're inspired or not. But the problem is the story will be clearly not inspired uh, if people can spot it. So you just keep working. I found the best way for me was don't stop. Yeah, maybe there was a whole bunch of not great stuff, uh, but I write my way through it. And lastly, what is your definition of a hero? 
a real hero is somebody who selflessly exists to help others. When you created a new character after your first Johnny Double, did you feel the same kind of excitement or anxiety, or is it more of a diminished return? Every job, every every assignment is brand new. It doesn't matter if you write 250 issues of the Teen Titans over God knows how many years, or you're just writing one thing. You have new problems to solve, you have new ideas to solve, so you you get plugged in very much with that, and you do get excited. Uh, I just did a Raven miniseries and in 1980 and yet I came up with something that shocked me that I never thought of it earlier you know 40 something years ago uh, it should have been obvious to me and I didn't and it wasn't but I came up with it now so even something that's long run like Raven or any of the Titans characters or the stuff that I did before that is still exciting when you try when you a brand new wrinkle and something you didn't think there were any left and yet it's a vital wrinkle it's so it was actually plugged totally into the character and therefore you go why didn't you think of this earlier really quick i wanted to ask about the tomb of dracula it was uh, once quoted as one of the most critically acclaimed horror themed comic books ever how did you react to such incredible acclaim oh trust me the companies have a way of keeping that acclaim from going to bed I, you know, you just, you do the job. You know, I don't, you know, it's nice to get nice mail. It really is. You start receiving mail about how a story affected somebody, how it helped them through a bad spot or something else. And I get that a lot now from people who read the books 30 years ago, uh, but never felt comfortable until talking about it until more recently. It means that you've done a great job. You've made, it means that you've done something that's affected other people. And that is great, but that doesn't help you with your next story. It just means, yeah, maybe I do know what I'm doing, but I still got to come up with an entire story. I got to come up with characters. I got to come up with it, That never stops. So that keeps you humble right there. Last year, as I told you, I um, was interviewing Chris Claremont and I asked him who his favorite character was. And yeah, I've got to be honest. I didn't think he told us the truth because he said, pick one. And I was like, Storm. And uh, he joked about it, but then he talked about Kitty Pride for probably two hours after that. And then the next two times I saw him, he also brought up Kitty Pride. So I guess I wanted to ask is, do you have a favorite? And if you don't, and I'm sure it can be like, kind of like choosing a favorite pet, but do you really have a favorite or do you kind of, do you truly love them all the same? Well, you don't love them all the same, but you do love them all. And you certainly love the ones that work. And therefore, if you're writing Teen Titans and you come up with some really clever ideas, you're really thrilled by those characters. And those characters mean an awful lot to you. But then when you're writing uh, Superman and you come up with a brand new idea that's never been done in Superman, that suddenly becomes your favorite. It's, it's all about what the characters do to um, satisfy the need that you had in writing the story. If, it, if it's, they succeed, that's great. If they don't, you just try to either make it work the next time or you keep going back and work on it. And some characters just never work out. Uh, for, for whatever reason, they could be brilliantly conceived, but there's nothing that anybody grabs onto and you don't know why. Another reason why you can stay humble and that's because you have no clue. <laughs> 
What was the process like developing new characters for the Teen Titans, specifically Cyborg, Raven, and Starfire? First, I'd like to ask what changed in the world that introduced seeing a new black character was okay now, but also what was the process like for Raven and Starfire? Well, with Cyborg, first of all, I had already done Blade at Marvel. I had done it for a decade, almost, you know, eight years actually and uh, wrote individual Blade stories outside of Tomb of Dracula. So the idea of black character, I, it wasn't even a uh, think twice about it. Yeah, of course. You know, I went, as, as I, we talked about earlier, I went to school at High School of Art and Design. Most high schools you go to are in your neighborhood, which means everybody else going to that school, all the other students are pretty much the same people tend to be in neighborhoods together or whatever. So it's people you know or people in the area or whatever else. Art and design was in Manhattan and you had to be an artist to get into it. You had to be able to show a portfolio and such, which meant nobody was actually in my neighborhood. Everybody was all around New York City. So every ethnic type was there and you realize right up front, you know, why aren't there uh, blacks or Latinos or Asians or anything else. They're all around you. They're everywhere around you. So why aren't they in comics? So, uh, you know, I uh, did that in Marvel. I had a number of black characters, heroes and villains. And I saw no reason why they wouldn't be. But I didn't want to play the, t the stereotypical thing. I wanted people to think it was. So the first couple of issues, you had Vic very angry. The uh, accident that caused him to no longer, can no longer be an athlete. He was really angry at what happened to him. And because as his father rebuilt him, he could never go back to the one thing he truly loved, which was sports. He just loved that. But he was also really smart. <laughs> and his father wanted him to go into science and he was angry that he no longer could do what he loved, but had to go into please his father instead, even though ultimately it of course worked out for him. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're going to immediately agree with your parents. As for Raven and Starfire, when I was doing Tomb of Dracula, I had some very strong female characters uh, in the book. Uh, we had uh, Rachel Van Helsing, who was strong and as nuts and as crazy as every other book. Um, the idea of writing strong women characters again, has been something I've always done. Uh, uh, with Spider-Man, I introduced the first female villain with, with Black Cat. So the big innovation of Titans was not that there were female characters in it, but up until then, all the other group books had won. Half of our team was female. And I thought, you know, why not? My daughter was a girl, <laughs> you know, write characters that she would like as well. I'm kind of going along a similar vein. How did the character of Bullseye come about? Bullseye, uh, Daredevil uh, is blind, which means his power is he can see. Um, but the radar vision lets him know what somebody is doing close up. What if you were right outside the scope of radar vision? Because it's not endless, otherwise he could see to the other end, you know, to the horizon. What if a character could deal long-range pain and long-range problems? The thought with uh, Bullseye was get a character who uh, Daredevil can't sense that quickly. 
because he's out of range. He can't know what he's going to do. And from that distance, Bullseye could do it because he's that good. But uh, Daredevil can't really stop him. How do you know when a character is ready to enter the world? I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a character isn't per se done when you introduce them, but is there some level of readiness that they need before they can become part of a story? Well, yeah, uh, but that doesn't mean you know the, you actually know that moment. Also, there are deadlines, and sometimes you got to move ahead whether you're ready or not, and you hope it works out. You know, you just keep trying. Uh, sometimes you know that the character is, is great right out, uh, right, you know, it, that the character works. You know the character works from the moment you come up with them. A character like Deathstroke or Blade, or characters like that, uh, where I, they came up to me instantly and I knew everything about them. Uh, but other characters I've done that, you know, really just never came together. They just, for whatever reason, but you still have to do it. You still have to get that book out there. And unless alternate storyline real fast, you're stuck with doing a character who may not be 100% exactly what you want. But if you still like it, you could play with it. The nice thing about comics is you can make major changes uh, to a character and uh, eventually get it to where you want it to be. Okay, so instead of asking uh, what your favorite work is, because a lot of creators seem to say that their most recent work is their favorite work, are there any particular works of yours that are special to you in different ways than other works are? Yeah, there's no one character that I I would ever pinpoint, but uh, obviously uh, a book like Crisis on Infinite Earths was very important to me, not because of what it did, but because of how difficult it was to put together and how anything that went wrong with that, and that type of book never existed before we did uh, Crisis. There was no paradigm to how you do these things. Um, anything could have blown that away, uh, could have just destroyed it because if, it, if something didn't work, every fan out there was paying real attention to that book. And the fact is there were like four or 500 characters in it and you still had to write them in, in character. And uh, the approach had to be right, and the, um, the approach had to be right. But more importantly, you had to keep setting up these stories that nobody would know was leading to the next step. So it was, I, I talk about structure a lot because I talk about it in my seminars, but that book took forever to structure correctly. And fortunately, I had uh, some time to do it in. I didn't have to rush it out. And I think these type of projects very often get rushed out. Once Crisis was a hit, everybody wanted to do these things. But I took a long time to plot that book, long before we even had an artist. Um, at first, George George Perez wasn't going to be drawing the book. But every time we'd see him, he'd ask me how it was going. You know, just in chatting, and I tell him, and finally he said, I can't take it anymore. I got a drawer. And I said, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I really wanted that. But he wasn't going to do it because we had just all the titans and all this other stuff and he wanted to try something completely different namely write his own material uh he wasn't looking for a different writer he wanted to do his own so um i was thrilled that he uh he signed on because i never thought anybody else could do it better or even close to what he did but it was a very very difficult uh difficult book to do and therefore i'm incredibly proud that 
Even to this day, I can't find any holes in the story. I'm sure there is, but I can't find it yet. And it's been, let's say, 37 years. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's bulletproof, I don't know. Expanding the scope of that a bit, are there some other characters that you've either you're, uh, created yourself or you've worked on a lot previously that you'd like to work on again? Uh, the character I love writing is Superman. Uh, I've written him with a number of different editors and a number of different approaches, and they're all valid. And I could change it depending upon how I'm feeling as long as I keep within the personality that you know what's a Superman story. So I really love writing him. Uh, with my characters, I love writing uh, Raven because she's very complex. Starfire's storyline is very complex, but she's much more straightforward even though there's a lot of complexities with her. She's one of my favorites, but uh, Raven is always a struggle to do, which is why I like it uh, more. And there are others, I just can't think of them at the moment. What's the experience like of creating a new character? and then handing it off to another writer. Were there any times where you thought to yourself, oh no, Nova or Tarex would never do that? I have always, since the days of Tomb of Dracula, refused to look at any book or character that I created after I leave it. So I have no idea when a writer handles the character right or wrong. Uh, my assumption is they're gonna handle it wrong. Uh, simply because, not because of their talent, they may be 100% better than me in any, on any one given day, you know, but because I created their dialogue, I created their speech pattern, I understand it in my head, nobody else can get into my head. They can create a brilliant speech pattern that could blow mine away, but it won't be right. It won't be right in my ear, so I don't, I don't read it. Also, I didn't ask the guys who wrote uh, Teen Titans before I did, for them, I don't think it's right for me to offer my opinion on somebody else's version of my stuff. They should have the same right I did with, say, Robin, to control it and to do what they felt was right with the character that I had. And since I insisted upon being left alone and to do my stuff on, on those books, it would be the height of hypocrisy for me to then turn around and say, I had the freedom to do it, but you don't. And I think it's better that way. What is it like when you see the characters that you've created show up in different mediums? Uh, for instance, Cyborg and Deathstroke have both been featured in numerous animated cartoons, full like the animated films, and actually now we're going to see them in Hollywood films. So maybe not so much in like um, criticizing their characterization, but how does it feel when you see your work transcend mediums like that? Uh, I love it. I really do. Uh, it means that we created something that others want to mine that field. That there's something about what we did that is strong enough for them to want to turn a movie or a cartoon show or something else. It's just sort of validation on that. And I've been fairly lucky. For the most part, I would say the adaptations have been excellent. And um, I can't think of anything that was so awful that I screamed over. But, as I say, for the most part, uh, they've been pretty on target, which again means that we created um, very iconic type concepts that people could understand even if they changed how it's done. So you can have the Teen Titans in the comic book 
and then you have the first cartoon show, which was obviously very, very different from what we did, but Starfire was still Starfire and Raven was still Raven. You know, they added extra bits to it, but they understood how, they understood why it worked and they found that their ways to make it work. By the way, I don't have any problem watching any of that sort of stuff because uh, uh, where I do in comics, because I expect when it's put into a different medium, they're going to change things. So um, I, I don't worry about that. So one of my favorite Marvel stories ever told is that Spider-Woman was uh, originally going to be a mutated spider in human form. And it was you that actually made the Jessica Drew backstory, if I remember correctly. Um, it's considered one of the most needed and best retcons in the history of comics. So how did you react when someone told you, hey, you're going to be working on Spider-Woman and you'd be writing for a spider turned human female? And how did her origin story come about from there? First off, um, it didn't quite happen that way, but uh, Archie Goodwin, uh, who may be one of the best writers ever in the history of comics, as well as one of the nicest human beings in the history of comics, was asked by Stan to do a Spider-Woman. The reason was some animation company was going to come out with a character named Spider-Woman and Marvel wanted to protect the Spider-Man concept they didn't want people to think that this was connected to spider-man so archie came up with this and the idea was to stay as far away from spider-man as you possibly could uh, but you still had to do it so they worked out the concepts that you saw in uh i think it was marble spotlight or something like that i forget where where they never expected she'd come back they never expected it would do well they just were protecting the name Spider-Woman. Uh, what happened was it sold really well and um, they decided to turn her into a book and they asked me to handle it because Archie was far uh, too uh, at that time to do it and uh, the only thing was to make her a human being. They didn't say how, they didn't do it and I was happy because I just I had no interest in writing a spider, <laughs> just not my uh, cup of tea. So reworked the whole thing and just did the uh, Jessica Drew saw. Oh, by the way, Jessica was named after my daughter and Drew after Nancy Drew. Oh, really? Oh, oh wow. Yeah. That's so cool. You've both created and written many iconic characters, but Spider-Man is often considered one of the most popular comic book characters of all time. And one of the storylines you wrote for him, Mary Jane refuses Peter's marriage proposal in uh, one of those comics. Was it always on your mind that she was going to reject him? My view was Peter Parker was somebody for years upon years upon years, sort of a loser, sort of having troubles, all of this stuff. But Mary Jane was a supermodel. You're dating a supermodel, you don't have those problems. You don't, you're no longer the nerd character, you're no longer the underdog, you're no longer somebody who really has to do an awful lot. Or can't prove their worth. People could say, oh, he just hangs with her. But people are jealous of you. It's everything that, to me, Peter Parker was not by, by being with somebody like that. So I wanted to get back to Peter having problems and uh, Peter being more relatable because not not that many people date supermodels that's why he proposed it was a typical peter thing to do 
And that's why she turned him down, because that was the Peter I wanted. The guy who gets turned down by the supermodel, not the... The fact that he could even ask was probably too much. But yeah, that's the reason for that. You always have to think about the characters and why they work. And when you start changing them beyond what makes them work, you're making a mistake. Uh, you need to keep evolving the characters, but you don't suddenly change the entire direction for no reason other than it would be cool. You also create a strong female character in Black Cat, also known as Felicia Hardy. What gave you the idea to put her in Spider-Man? Let's go back to Spider-Woman uh, for a second. I never quite uh, think to do with Spider-Woman. I was never very happy with the book. And I had come up with a Black Cat for Spider-Woman uh, originally. Uh, she was not going to be dressed the way she was. My idea was she was going to look sort of like a 40s Hollywood uh, type femme fatale in a long slouched hat, long coat, all that sort of stuff. And since I had named Spider-Woman Jessica Drew, the Drew after um, Nancy Drew, I thought it would be hilarious to make her Felicia Hardy after the Hardy Boys. So uh, that was all planned. And in fact, we had a cover drawn. But then I decided I really don't want to continue on the book. I wasn't doing anything that I thought was a was special. I didn't feel comfortable with it. So I left and they, just as they asked me to take over Spider-Man, and I just took the black hat with me and made the alterations for Spider-Man as opposed to um, uh, uh, Spider-Woman. So that's the reason and the, and the Hardy Boys meets the Nancy, Nancy Drew is, is in the background there. <laughs> Okay, so moving on to DC, let's get started with when you wanted to introduce DC's first black superhero, but were nixed by the edi editors. What was that like? No, the editor approved it. It was even written. It was written and was drawn, and it was lettered and it was colored and it was going to go out to the printer, and it was pulled uh, at the last minute. Uh, the publisher at the time says it was because the script it wasn't very good. Others say that there was problems in the South with a black character or something. And uh, we wrote what we had submitted to the editor. And we were told to make it as strong as we could. But I guess uh, in at that particular point, uh, it just was not ready to do it. Uh, it's really sad. The artwork was gorgeous. I mean, it was one of the best art jobs that Nicotti ever did. And Nicotti was brilliant. Um, I've got Xeroxes someplace of most of it, but not all. The artwork vanished, so we weren't able to make copies of everything. But yeah, the story, I'm sure, it was one of the early ones, so I'm sure the writing wasn't great, but Neil Adams volunteered and re-dialogued re it on his own. And they still did, and they still said no. So I don't know quite what the reason is. I don't want to. I don't want to point fingers because I've heard a half dozen explanations for it. I've got my suppositions, but the, they're just my suppositions. The character of uh, Deathstroke is often thought of as the archenemy of the Teen Titans. Yet the character has become somewhat more associated with being either an anti-hero or for opposing other superheroes. How do you feel about the way the character has been portrayed in more recent years? Well, as I say, I don't look at any of that stuff, but I'm very aware of it because people tell me about it anyway. Deathstroke would not 
I never saw Deathstroke as a villain, ever. I saw Deathstroke as a character. Never would have been involved with the Teen Titans. Never was interested in in them. Didn't even know who they were. But his he has to vouch for his son because his son wants the the Hive uh, hires tries to hire Deathstroke to take on this job, and Deathstroke refuses. That is because he doesn't care about the Titans. He's not going to go out to kill them. He's a mercenary. He's a soldier. He goes and he's a paid soldier for different governments. And then what happens is uh, his son begs him to vouch for him. And Deathstroke says, yeah, okay, fine, whatever, who cares? And vouches for him. And then the son gets killed. And now Deathstroke has the son's mission. He has to he has to do this mission. So it's not something he ever wanted. It's not something he believed in. And what that what happened was because he had made this he would uh, he would back up his son and then the son gets killed, he has to take on the mission. And that drags him down and keeps dragging him down because that the Titans are too good. They don't they don't just curl up and die. And he really doesn't have his heart in that, but he keeps having to go further and further down the rabbit hole. And to me that made him interesting. But he's not as somebody who really should have been something else but he didn't he didn't trust himself and he couldn't um he couldn't back away from something he didn't believe in because he always felt his word was his bond and once he gave it he couldn't get away from it and that that led him into becoming a worse and worse human being where did the idea for raven a superhero who won't fight come from and do you feel she has a different place on the team as a result of her pacifism and as a follow-up, do you think the character has strayed too far from her pacifism since her origin? When I was putting together the first thing I wanted was I didn't want a team-up book. I didn't want the Justice League where you bring in all these different characters and they just work together. What I wanted to create was a family. And it was very it was vital to me that this be a family. I was um you know, a lot of people thought we were doing DC's version of X-Men, and I keep sa- I kept saying at the time, no, we're not. We're doing DC's version of the Fantastic Four, which was a family, and all of them were friends. And in this case, they couldn't all be friends, but they could become friends fairly quickly. So when you're doing this, in my mind, I want to have points of similarity and points of differences between all the characters. So I created a triangle. And the top of the triangle was Wonder Girl. And on one side of the triangle was Starfire, and the other side of the triangle was um, uh, Raven. So Wonder Girl comes from this sort of culture society of the Amazons. Uh, they both have a very strong religious background as well as a warrior class. So let's spin off the warrior class, and that becomes Starfire. Let's spin off the cultish type, and that becomes Raven. Now you're at the bottom of the triangle. Starfire is incredibly emotional. She she lives on her emotions. Raven is not allowed to have emotions, so she's the opposite. Starfire is violent, and Wonder Girl can be, because she's an action character, an Amazon who, who was trained to fight, and 
Raven is a pacifist because she can't allow herself to get emotionally involved with those type of things. She can't allow what's inside her to come out. So all the characters were created to have similarities and differences. And when you're putting it together, each step causes you to think about, okay, let's talk about the pacifism, the opposite of Starfire. Let's talk about emotions. One has, one lives on emotions. One has to not give into the emotion. So the character was created, but step by step, that was a very slow creation. But it, I needed so many things from her because I had to have her have enough similarities or enough problems that were similar to the others. And they were, because again, Raven, Raven's father, Raven's parents, or father in this case, was this great demon and awful. And Starfire's father sold her into protect her world, which was not uncommon in, in the real world uh, back in the old days. People were married as a marriage of state, not a marriage of love. So uh, that's how Raven was put together, was slow, but everything was very carefully thought out and I took a long time with her, which is why I probably enjoy writing with her, writing her as much. What's the relationship between pacifism and heroism? I think in Raven's the way Raven was taught, she can't allow herself to get emotionally involved or this demon that's in her can come out. So her belief is you have to find other ways of dealing with problems because the problems aren't going to go away. So it has to be how you deal with them. And one of the problems comics has is, is that the first thing people do is immediately start battling. And I didn't necessarily want that as all of the characters of the Titans. We already have enough of them. So let's place the character a little bit differently and let's set her, set her up to be a different persona with different reasons and different approach to how you solve problems. When you sat down to write Crisis on Infinite Earths, what was the process like in terms of deciding which alternate Earth characters to keep in the new, new DC reformed universe? Well, that was the easy part. I made a few recommendations, but every editor was was asked to make their own. I had suggested Supergirl, DC, uh, the publisher wanted Flash, including it in that. Uh, pretty much people suggested the characters. I didn't want to take it on my own shoulders to uh, decide that your character, your favorite character is going to live or die. You know, uh, I meant I did come up with a, like a, a half dozen or a dozen, including Supergirl, because our idea was that we were starting over, and therefore it was a man be the last son of Krypton again, which he was. I always expected at some point we'd create a new Supergirl, but we wouldn't. It, w- it would not include all the um, problems or mistakes that had been made, you know, in the 1950s with the character and we could start afresh, and pretty much that's what they've done now. So circling back to Crisis on Infinite Earths, because this is one of my favorite books that you've ever written, uh, I think I remember reading somewhere recently that the original intention for the Anti-Monitor was that this was supposed to be a one-off character and never used again, which would be fitting given the scale of the book. So how do you feel about it being reused in other titles? I know that You've said that you don't like to read other things, but do you think that it's almost superfluous and that he shouldn't be in these other books because of just the magnitude of Crisis? Or is it, how do you feel about him being reused again? Um, my intent 
was that he, he just be he just exists for that for the crisis and we didn't destroy him once we destroyed him like six times in the book we kept killing him and he kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller so obviously there was no intent on my part that he continued but then again you know I've changed characters when I took him over when I took over Robin he was sort of like this 12 year old who spouted um, silly puns and stuff and I turned him into the character who uh, uh, Dick Grayson who is really an adult you know and very different so when you don't own your characters you do the job that you think and you hope that people who follow you do a great job the fact that they all liked the anti-monitor great there aren't a lot of big cosmic characters I've created several of them for DC uh, the Anti-Monitor and, of course, uh, Trigon. So it's nice that they do it, but, you know, that's up to them. That's really up to them. I guess to kind of follow up with that, since you're talking about cosmic characters and things like that, how do you approach a concept like Crisis and just the narrative scale of the story? From a narrative perspective, where do you start? Because that was like its service was to be resetting of the universe. But like, how do you approach doing something so huge? Well, I pitched it to DC as a resetting of the universe. I saw it as... Uh, I, I handled it as three, four-issue stories. If you look at it at the end of issue four, there's a big big shock. At the end of issue eight, there's a big shock. Because it's easier, I think, in many ways to think in smaller terms. But the narrative extended through all 12 issues. One of the things I love as a writer, I love it when an editor actually challenges me on something utterly ridiculous and, I, and I'm to make it work. Uh, those are the things that I enjoy the most. So even though I came up with the idea for Crisis, once it was approved, I had to make it work. And it was a slow process of outlining and outlining and outlining and coming, and then simplifying the outlines and then making them more complex, hiding facts, and that's why it took so long to do. It took about two years, three years to get it all together. And I wasn't working on it for two to three years, but after they were, after it was approved, I had about three years of time before I had to actually do it. And that was just thinking time. So it was very important to me that if you're gonna do something this big, either save the DC universe or destroy it forever, you better do something that saves it. And that's, and by spending the time we did, it all worked out, but it was very, very difficult. Uh, it's not an e that was not an easy story to do. And that's why earlier I said how much I, that one I can't talk, say I was really pleased by because it was ever had in a way to do, and it worked out. There are a lot of little things that most people don't spot. I know after the first issue came out, I got a fan letter from Alan Moore who understood why I had, uh, he's the only one who ever talked about it, understood why the book opens with the death of the uh, villain universe. My goal, because my goal was to uh, get people to buy, to look at a DC book, and back then there weren't a lot of, uh, DC wasn't selling like Marvel was, so the idea was to show the DC universe, and my figuring was that if people, the Marvel fans, 
did not like the DC universe, it may be because Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman were characters they didn't like. So if you look at the book, it's those characters don't even show up for any lengthy time for at least six issues. They're all minor characters that almost nobody knew. The idea was to show how big it was. Then, what I, what I wanted right from the, right from the minute of the first page, for you to know how powerful these the villain was, how powerful the anti-monitor was, and what we did was we had him we had him wipe out the bad guys on that Earth three planet in like six pages. And that does that sounds fine. That's fun. It's all villains who care, right? But they're not because that was they had the evil version of Superman, the evil version of Green Lantern, the evil version of Wonder Woman. They had all the evil versions of things with all the exact same powers that the good versions have, and they're wiped out in six pages. That tells the reader subconsciously that this guy is so powerful he could take on the whole Justice League and get rid of them that fast without having to show Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, or any of the others. So there's a lot of things that Alan spotted. He understood exactly why I set it up um, to have those characters done. He understood how that would affect the readers. They would, they may not even understand it or even pay showing us he could defeat Superman. No, but it's there. You've set up this character is so powerful he can take on the whole Justice League and get rid of them in just pages. So the comics industry has certainly changed a lot over the years. Um, is there anything you'd like more about it now than you did during the earlier years? And what about the converse of that? The problem with comics in the past has been that because of the comics code, we can only do comics essentially for people up to 12 or 13 or 14. And in fact, most people gave up comics at that particular point in their lives uh, because the stories could not get adult. They could not get uh, deeper. Where comics started, we didn't need to go that way, but the comics code sort of forced it. So I really like the fact today that we can now have comics for every possible audience. And it's not limited to kids, it's not limited to adults, it's not limited to teenagers, it's everybody. What types of comics do you want to see published more by The Big Two? Well, the problem is that The Big Two aren't always set up to do all types. I think independent comics work because it could be, first of all, you don't have to sell 10,000 copies or 15,000 copies, you can sell 2,000 copies, maybe 1,000 copies, but you can tell a story that's a major importance to you. DC does have the vertical line which allows for much more adult stories and they allow for different types of stories. Marvel is pretty much... Um, but I think because of the way comic shops work and the way uh, the industry is, having the independents on their own, having Image do what, they're, what they've started to do in the last couple of years, IDW, Dark Horse, appeal to different audiences because they don't require the same sales. So you can really narrow cast your stories to tell something of real importance to you. And that's great for comics. We'd be remiss if we didn't actually ask, what are you working on right now? We read that you'd be working on something with Bullseye for Marvel, right? Well, that was the last thing I did uh, for Marvel, uh, but I did that a couple months ago. 
At the moment, uh, I don't have an actual assignment, but I'm supposed to be bringing in an idea for a new miniseries. And yeah, I did something for a, ch a company out of China, uh, but you know, you guys will never see it, so I don't talk about that. And I do work on other bit, other things outside of comics. For the most part, uh, right now it's just a, a couple of presentations. Thank you so much. Um, so definitely on behalf of Comics First and for everyone listening and for everyone joining us, it really means a lot to us to have you here. So again, thank you. You take care. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the Comics First podcast. A special thanks to uh, Sam, Ward, Rachel, who made it through their very first podcast, and Andrew, who's our studio audience, our entire studio audience today, which is completely amazing. And also thank you, Tim, as well, for being kind of the... I, I don't know like what role you would be. Um, <laughs> Godfather, maybe. I no, could be I, the Don. Yeah, you could be, you could be like Al Pacino, and I could be like Marlon Brando. Oh, I like that. Okay, or like Classic. if, or like if I was Emma Frost, you could be empath. No, that wasn't. That's a whole different thing. If I was, you know what? Forget it. Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah. Also, huh? Batman and Robin. I, I'm no, sorry. I'm not, okay, but I not do that look, gay. I do look good in tights. Um, so. yeah, I don't. So sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, so it works. Yeah, right. Don't we all? So. <laughs> I know. Well, Ward's wearing tights right now, which is what no one can see. Um, so that's like really amazing. <laughs> I also have a fe feather boa. I'm holding a crocodile, and I'm wearing five hats on top of my other hat. Exactly, ladies. You can find them on comicsverse.com. So um, please make sure you uh, you check it out there. Um, but yeah, another special thanks to Marv Wolfman for granting us this interview. I know he didn't have a lot of time, so it was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, remember you can find us and Ward wearing a boa and uh, latex or something on comicsverse.com. And don't forget to check out our weekly comics news show, more podcasts, articles, interviews. Good night, everybody. Bye. 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 See you. <laughs>